Hey, this is Dr. Michael Drake, Chancellor at the University of California, Irvine, and you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and over the web at KUCI.org. I love Anita Radio. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. Good morning and welcome to this November 28th, 2012 edition of Writers on Writing on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. We are broadcasting to you live from the University of California campus in Irvine. We're streaming on the web at KUCI.org. We are always available via podcast. I will give you more information on how to access our podcasts later in the hour. I'm your guest host, Marie Stone, and as always, Writers on Writing is dedicated to the art and business of books. Each and every week, Barbara is here with authors, poets, it's literary agents giving you the latest and most up-to-date information on the publishing world. I'm pleased to be joined now by Jana Malamud-Smith, and coming up in the second half hour, Lisa Genova will be here with her latest novel, Love, Anthony. Jana Smith is the author of three previous books, My Father is a Book, a memoir of Bernard Malamud, A Potent Spell, Mother Love and the Power of Fear, and Private Matters in Defense of the Personal Life. Her titles have been New York Times Notable Books and Private Matters as a Barnes & Noble Discover Great New Writers pick. She has written for the New York Times, the Boston Globe, the Three Penny Review, among other publications. She is a practicing psychotherapist and joins me from Massachusetts to discuss her latest book, An Absorbing Errand, How, author, how Artists and Craftsmen Make Their Way to Mastery. It's published by CounterPoint, and we will talk about it this morning. Jana, welcome. Thank you. So let's, um, I'm going to give you a chance to, to sort of take us through the scope of the book, um, you know, kind of what the book covers for people who, who haven't had a chance to pick it up yet, and how it differs from other books they're going to find out there, you know, your, your approach to it. Sure. Well, maybe let me start with a title, An Absorbing Errand, because it's such a great concept. Um, it comes from Henry James, and it essentially comes from an early book where he talks about it. Somebody says, you know, we're told that we need to be happy and that in order to be happy, we have to get outside of ourselves. He says, but, you know, it's not enough to get outside. We have to stay outside, and to stay outside, you have to have an absorbing errand. And so the book is really about how satisfying it can be in life if you can find a craft or an art form that really engages you and that gives you a lens through which to look at the world um, or a way of entering the world and being part of a world. So, for example, um, just to take a small example, if you're a woodworker, all of a sudden all the trees in the whole world are interesting to you in a different way than they are to the rest of us because you think about their grains and how they become furniture and etc. Um, so the book is not only about it, why it is so uh, pleasurable and, and really more than pleasurable, a great source of meaning-making um, to have a craft or an art form, but the book really focuses on the things that interfere with people staying with the process of mastery long enough to get to a place where they can really get satisfaction from it. You know, so many people want to make music or make art or paint or um, weave or whatever it is, uh, stained glass, um, I don't know, I've heard from all kinds of people, cloth dyers, you name it. Um, but, but it's hard to stay in the process both long enough to learn to do it, but then to stay in it even as you are doing it because it can be so challenging. And this book looks at the different challenges and looks at ways to use them in, to turn them, uh, the energy uh, to your own behalf and towards that of your work. 
Yeah, I was reminded when I was reading this a lot of the uh, the war of art and um, that concept of resistance and, you know, what prevents the artist from staying in her chair and, you know, all of the obstacles that you have to overcome because it feels a lot like exercise to me, you know, that <laughs> you know you're going to feel better after you do it, but it's so hard to put your shoes on. <laughs> yeah, I think that that's absolutely true, but maybe... For a slightly different form of, of uh, pain, you know, the exercise, the physical discomfort uh, gets the day. But in this case, um, I, I talk about something actually that Proust says, which is that the, the hard part about staying with art is that in order to let our creativity loose, we have to agree to, get, uh, to let go of the habits that we have that keep pain at bay during the day. And we have to let in... Um, the good stuff and the hard stuff. We have to let our unconsciouses bubble up and let memories in and let feelings in and let observations in. And that's profoundly rich, but it can also be unsettling. Yeah, your point about how, um, you know, Freud talks about all of these defense mechanisms that we have that that protect us from all of the things they should protect us from and how you, you really have to battle those back down in order to um, in order to create art that, that there are so many things that are naturally intention in order for uh, for art to come about yeah exactly and for I mean just to give an example I'm, in a way you have to battle them down but in a way you have to sort of befriend them um, but supposing I think an example I use in the book is you're on the bus to work you get a glimpse of a lover of yours who you've broken up with and you're really unsettled and your job if you're going to work is to resettle yourself so you can go to the next meeting but your job if you're going to write a quartet (laughs) is to let those feelings really play on you until they can mix with uh, the notes that you're hearing in your head or become those notes and until you have time to begin to capture them on paper so it is a different relationship to your um, to your feeling life and uh, it, it is, it, you know, it can be challenging, but it can also be fabulous. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about this connection between psychotherapy and creativity, because I assume it's it's no accident that you're both a psychotherapist and, you know, are, are incredibly intuitive uh, with respect to the, the challenges that face the creative personality type. So tell me a little bit about how your background in psychotherapy sort of uniquely positions you uh, to give you know, fantastic advice in this regard. Let's hope it's fantastic. Um, I, I think that, first of all, if you're a psychotherapist, you are working in a craft form. And it's not the same as a high art form, but it has a lot in common because the process of mastery is very similar. You spend a lot of time not knowing. Um, and another thing that characterizes all craft and that, that both makes it wonderful and challenging is that you never get to a point where you can say, aha, now I've got all the answers. And that's certainly true as a therapist. So in part, I just live in that, in that stance, um, in that way of being. And I think also as a therapist, you get the chance to listen to a lot of people. So I've had the good fortune to hear a lot about people's struggles in the arts and out. And I think that more than intuition, it's sort of that information that really helps me put my writing self together with my psychotherapy self in an effort to uh, be useful to other people. And of course, the third thing as a therapist is you just want to be useful. And so I've written a book that I really hope, and people tell me this is true, um, will be a companion for people in their struggle. I've tried to put myself sort of beside another person looking out on the world the way I think the best therapists do, so that, you know, it's not so much that you're looking eye to eye, but it's that you're both sitting in rocking chairs on the porch 
observing the parade together as it goes by. <laughs> that's, that's nice. Yeah, there seems to be this huge disconnect between everyone's reality, which is, you know, fear, resistance, whatever their fears are, and our perception of everyone else's reality that, <laughs> yeah. you know, they're not going through the same things we're going through and that things come easily to them. I don't know why we still harbor these notions, but, you know, it seems like we feel very isolated and alone and, you know, in our endeavors to, to create yeah. something. So, Yeah, no, I think, I think we do, and I think that that in part is just the way things are, but I think it's also part of the kind of sequestering that often goes on around creativity. You know, you want to be a little bit isolated. You want some privacy because unless you have some privacy, all the person next to you has to do is raise their eyebrows slightly the wrong way um, at the moment when you're first putting your most vulnerable thoughts out out to yourself about what it is you're trying to create, and you'll you'll see the whole thing collapse. Um, so you sequester yourself a little bit um, in order to create that temporary privacy. But I think what happens is that people then get stuck in it, and, and um, in our current culture, there's so much isolation and so much anomie that it kind of feeds into that, and people just end up feeling so alone with their psyches. Yeah, <laughs> ain't, that, ain't that true. Yeah. <laughs> you are tuned into Writers on Writing on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. I'm on with Janice Smith talking about an absorbing errand, how artists and craftsmen make their way to mastery. So maybe we can... Um, talk through some of the biggest stumbling blocks and some of your recommendations for for how to face them. I don't know if that makes sense to go sort of through the chapters or if you just want to name some of the biggest things that you see artists struggling with and, you know, and how you start to approach it. Sure. Why don't I name a few that come to my mind and then you can tell me the ones that you've thought about or read in the book that I've left out or ones that you want me to address. Um, But you know, one of the, the stories that I tell in the book is of a, um, a very accomplished writer who's on the radio, and it's a call-in show, and um, a young woman calls in and says, you know, um, I'm a writer, but I, don't, I can't write much. And the um, author says, with incredible disdain, you don't deserve to call yourself a writer. Um, and Everybody just got kind of who's listening gets kind of mortified hearing this comment of disdain, um, and I think that it, I'm telling that story because it captures um, one of the things that stops us most in our tracks is our fear of exactly that kind of disdain. How dare you think that you have something to say or something to offer or that you can create anything? Um, and with that, uh, one of the chapters in my book is all about how central shame is as a inhibiting force in our work, um, that we just so fear that feeling of being pointed at and discussed and told, uh, you know, you've risen above you. <laughs> Who do you think you are? You've risen above your station. Um, so I talk a lot about shame and how, in fact, what a rich source of art it is and how much of art is actually um, an effort to get beyond it in certain ways. Um, and so in that chapter and in most of them, I try to take the thing that can stop us, like the feeling of shame, and show how, and in, in the case of shame, it's with Charlie Chaplin, show how his early experiences of shame became the absolute core source of his phenomenal humor and of his ability to create characters with whom everybody resonated. Mm-hmm. I guess the the flip side of the shame issue is 
um, earlier you talked about recognition and wanting people, wanting to be seen, not necessarily fame, but wanting to be known. Wanting to be known, yeah. I, I really feel that, that that's one of the most profound human impulses, and it, it's got to be because it must be so close to our survival. But you know that, that longing we have that somebody else can truly get us. You know, one of the hardest parts of life is that each of us has a slightly different perspective, and that's very rich, but it's also ultimately what, what we keep saying is makes us all alone. So there's this great longing in each of us to be seen with loving eyes. One of the examples I use in the book, which is just one of my favorites in literature, is when Odysseus has come back after all those that long time in Troy, and, you know, he's disguised himself so that the suitors won't kill him, and um, his nurse um, greets him and uh, goes to bathe him and sees a scar on his leg and is about to shout out his, his name because even though she's very old, she recognizes him through his disguise. And it's just a beautiful moment because it conveys so beautifully what love does, that when you love somebody, that's the kind of way um, you recognize them, and that's what it feels like to feel loved. And that wish for recognition, not like the recognition of Andy Warhol, like that 15 seconds of fame, but that wish of recognition to be seen with loving eyes um, is, is a profound driver of art, and also um, the hide-and-seek that comes with it. You know, the, the way that we all kind of costume ourselves to maybe look a little better or to present ourselves a little like someone more lovable um, is also a part of our creativity, and yet also there's a fear in this that, um, that inhibits us. I, I'm, maybe I'm putting too many words in this, but you tell me what you think. No, yeah, I think that's exactly right. I, w- I was going to say the flip side of your, your shame comments earlier struck me also as we're afraid to be discovered, you know, wh- whatever our ideas we can say, you know, well, that was fiction, that isn't really my life. Exactly. But whatever the underlying emotions are, I think there's usually a lot of shame or fear associated with a lot of whatever we're revealing in our writing. Yeah, and absolutely a fear that we'll be seen, even if we won't be shamed, but that somehow we won't be worthy of love. Right. Um, you know, and I think that, that so, I mean, certainly it was a running joke in my family with my father writing fiction. You know, he would always say, oh, it's, it's all fiction. Um, and one time, a number of years after he died, his biographer and I sat down together and we had, I, I threw my memoir and he threw his biography had pulled together enough in my father's life that we just looked at it and said, all fiction? Right. <laughs> but he, he needed that ruse with himself even more than with the rest of us in order to create enough privacy to tell the emotional truth. Right. Yeah, I, I've talked about that a lot on this show, mm-hmm. about how you get to the emotional truth through fiction and, mm-hmm. um, you know, how the maybe the window dressing around whatever your characters are literally doing is different. But whatever the underlying emotion is, it's, you know, it's never fiction, right? Or you wouldn't have come up with it. Well, that's right. And because, you know, I, I, one of my psychiatric mentors, who I thought was very wise, who's now dead, used to, used to say that, you know, really, really, underneath it all, we're all pretty much the same. Yeah, ex- yeah exactly right. Exactly right. Uh, my guest this morning is Jana Smith. The book is An Absorbing Errand. And uh, we are talking about the obstacles and uh, ways that the things stand in our way um, in our writing and creative life. It's sort of brings me to the the question about whether writing is a uniquely different craft than any of the other artistic crafts. 
because it is so intensely personal, you know, my, my husband's a photographer and we talk a lot about the similarities of, of voice and eye and, and, um, but it, it strikes me that when I write a page, I'm, I'm putting myself more out there than when he snaps a photograph. And I don't know if that's fair or not. Well, I, it, I, I think it's, it, I would tend to agree to you, with you, but I also write, but I think that, you know, subjectively a painter may feel absolutely as exposed i mean because i think everybody feels like they're revealing a core essence of themselves i think or many 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 people feel that way so i think subjectively people may share that but on a more objective access it may be that that it's a little worse for a writer i'm I, i i'm not positive um, what's interesting to me in the book is I really have heard from, I heard from a musician this morning, from a woodworker a couple weeks ago, from um, writers from all different kinds of crafts, so that I think there must be something about the core psychological processes that lots and lots of people resonate with. Um, for example, another chapter in the book is about ruthlessness and about how you parse your, the, the very, very finite time we have to earn a living to be with the people we love just to be on this earth and how much of it you can take for yourself. Right. Um, and a couple of people have written to me, you know, usually after their first child has been born or their second, saying, oh, man, did that chapter resonate. I am just in such a quandary um, <laughs> about that. And so I think that that once again, even though there there are, you're right to argue the variation between writing and photography and the amount of putting oneself directly on the line. I think subjectively there's more in common than not. Yeah, yeah. I um, I can't remember which chapter it was, but you made the observation about artists offering, often suffering early trauma mm-hmm. in their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and which sort of brought me to the question of whether artists are born or made or both. But uh, t- talk a little bit about some of the common threads that you see amongst intensely creative people? Well, I think that that I'm not the only one who sees them, and I, I think that actually a bunch has been written about early loss, you know, and, and the fact that it seems to make people um, either it, it, it kind of completely bends them double and they really don't recover, or there's a subset of very resilient people who want to be exceptional in some way, I think, to make up for it. But what I was trying to talk about particularly um, in, in creativity is, is two things. One is that creativity, in a way, is just a fancy form of, of problem-solving. You know, that, that my favorite quick image of creativity is that you've just painted yourself into a corner. You're in, like, in those cartoons, and you paint the door from which you exit. And create, there's something about create about painting that door when you feel cornered that maybe gets a little bit more heightened when things in your life have cornered you a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, that could be argued. Mm-hmm. Um, but the second part of it that I really was trying to put my finger on more was more about something that um, I use the story of Orpheus and Eurydice, um, or Eurydice to, to demonstrate, which is that um, there's a way in which the artist is, is like Orpheus, the, who, of course, was a uh, musician. Um, you know, y- you have this profound love, as he did for uh, Eurydice, and it is taken from you suddenly because she's, she's bitten by, I think, a snake as she runs away from somebody. And, you know, she's sent off to the underworld, and he is 
absolutely desolate. And he goes back into the underworld and he plays music so hauntingly beautiful that they break the rules down there and they say, okay, we'll let her come back. Um, and then, of course, uh, the rule is the, they say, but, you know, you can't look back at her. And if you look at her, um, she'll be dead forever. And I think that myth captures something profound about what artists do. Um, they've lost something. They've lost some early sense of the beloved. I, they, um, they go in search for it using their art as the vehicle, as the, pair, as the pipes with which they can call it back. Um, they're hoping to create something beautiful enough, something exceptional enough, that will let them somehow continue the conversation. And the art itself is a continuing of the conversation with the lost other. Um, and yet that pursuit is always fraught and it's always uh, in danger the way it is in, with Eurydice. And I, I spell it out more carefully sort of in the book, but I think that captures something of it. Yes, right, right. I'm sorry, I'm sort of rushing you through this because there's so much that I, uh, we, we should have two hours instead of <laughs> half an hour. <laughs> but I thought you made an amazing point about the difference between solitude and isolation mm-hmm. and the, the space that artists need uh, to create art versus the co- sort of the more destructive, too much cutting yourself off from the world and isolating yourself. And I, I thought maybe you could touch on that for just a moment. Sure, absolutely. It's sort of it's a place where the metaphor of solitary confinement kind of does it quickly for us. Mm. You know, if I choose to go into a room and stay there for a day um, because I want to, because my mind feels full and I have a lot I want to put on paper, that's one thing. But if you lock me in a room and tell me I got to stay there for a day, I can start to go nuts in as little as twenty minutes, is what the research says. Mm. Because the the fact, the idea that we have been put away from others and can't get back in human contact can, is just devastating for us as a species when it's not in our own control. And I think oftentimes creative people think that their solitude should be more solitudinous than is really good for them. Um, and they don't understand that, you know, Emerson said, you, you, need, you need solitude and you need society. You need companionship as much as you need to be alone. It's the moving back and forth with some freedom between those two states that is really good for craftsmen and artists. It isn't to get stuck in either one too long. Right. Right. The other theme that seemed to play throughout the book in a lot of the chapters was the connection between sexuality, eroticism, and art. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, phrases like, uh, you know, one of the artists saying, I, I paint with my penis, which might have been, you know, slightly over the top, but other, right. you know, this... Um, sort of finite, erotic, I can't remember the phrase, right, finite. Jonathan Lear, the psych- philosopher and psychoanalyst, has that wonderful expression that we are finite, erotic creatures. Right. And, right. and you know, the art is an expression of our, it's always so tangled with our eroticism. It's fueled by similar energy. Um, and it's an effort, I think, it's, it, it's many, many, many things. And uh, greater voices than mine have, have written tomes on this. But one part of it is this this profound effort to reconcile this eroticism with with our mortality and to kind of have our say, um, to have that chance to to sing as the waves carry us out. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Have we missed big points? Because I feel like I feel like everybody I encounter tells me they have a book they want to write. You know, if I had if I could just quit my job or if my mm-hmm. kids would move out of the house, I would have something to say. But, you know, obviously, so few people do it for a lot of reasons. But um, what, uh, what would you tell those people? I would, oh, I'm so glad you brought them up because 
I do think one of the best parts of people's feeling that they have the book inside them or the painting or whatever it is, is they're right. You know, each of us has so much more treasure in us than our daily life easily calls forth. You know, we have to work. We have to, we have to narrow our commitments no matter how rich they are. But there's so much more there, and that's another part of... You know, if you excuse me saying so, the pain of our mortality is to know that there's so much treasure that goes untapped. And so I urge them to first just respect that in themselves and enjoy it in themselves. And if there are opportunities to begin to bring it forth, you know, I, I wish them all the best in because the joy is truly in the effort as is the horror of it. Right, <laughs> right. Yeah, you're, you know, um, you were describing some artists' relationships with other artists, poets that are mm-hmm. have kept in contact through letter writing. And, um, you know, even if people are, are, you know, deceased and gone, you can still sort of draw upon their, their strengths uh, through the written word or whatever. I, I thought that was a really good um, maybe tool for people to use to, to find a... Um, creative companion or something that they can be kind of in constant contact with to um, work through some of these issues? Yeah, I think it's a great thing. I mean, I think, first of all, that certain kinds of writing groups any are a great idea, but I think if that isn't your thing, then having um, a companionship, not only the kind of companionship across time that you might have by reading the letters. I use the example of, of Elizabeth Bishop's and Robert Lowell's letters. You know, you can go back and read those and just take sustenance from what they did. But you can also create your own companionships by having um, somebody else who's doing something not too far from what you're doing with whom you email every couple of days. I certainly do that and because it lets me be less alone in my own solitude, and it, yet it lets me stay at my desk. Right, right. Janice Smith, this, uh, this was a huge pleasure. We find you online. You're at JaniceSmith.com, yes? Jana Smith. Ja- that's right. I'm sorry, JanaMalamuthSmith.com. Uh-huh. So it's got information on the other works that you've written. There's some dialogue and discussion. I know people can write in and, and chat with you about questions or problems that they're struggling with. Sure, and I'm also on Facebook and all Goodreads, you know, the whole array. I really welcome a discourse with people, so I hope they will. I love that. Thank you so much for taking the time this morning. Thank you for having me. That was Jana Malamud-Smith. The book is An Absorbing Errand, How Artists and Craftsmen Make Their Way to Mastery. Please stay with us. Uh, We will be back in the second half hour with Lisa Genova talking about her new novel, Love, Anthony. Stay tuned. We will be right back. see you go come back baby let's talk it over one more time my heart's full of sorrow mama aching tears gone 24 hours child seem like a thousand years 
Come back, baby, let's talk it over one more time. Talk it over before you go away. Come back, baby. Let's talk it over one more time. I find this scientifically fascinating. You're listening to KUCI Irvine. Disengage this computer now. Broadcasting at 88.9 FM. Hello, computer. And on the web at KUCI.org. The most reliable computer ever made. And streaming through iTunes. Don't expect any mercy during the Great Robot Wars. Anteater Radio brought to you by machines. Returning to normal broadcast in 3, 2, 1. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Welcome back to Writers on Writing on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. We are broadcasting live from the University of California campus in Irvine. We're streaming on the web at KUCI.org. This show will join the other interviews up on the web and available to you via podcast. You can visit us on iTunes. Uh, you can always visit Barbara's website, penonfire.com, for direct downloads, as well as information on past shows, upcoming shows, speaker series events, and more. There's a lot going on. Uh, certainly in the new year, and I think she's got all of those events up on her website, so you can check them out there. Onward with the show, I'm pleased to be joined now by Elisa Genova. Lisa graduated valedictorian from Boston College with a degree in psychobiology and has a Ph.D. in neuroscience from Harvard. She is the author of the New York Times bestselling novels Still Alice and Left Neglected. Her latest novel and the subject of our chat this morning is Love, Anthony. Lisa travels worldwide speaking about the causes, treatments, ways to prevent, and what it feels like to live with Alzheimer's disease. She has appeared on The Dr. Oz Show, The Diane Rehm Show, CNN, Chronicle, Fox News, and Canada AM, and was featured in the documentary film to not fade away uh, but this morning it is love anthony that we're chatting about it is my huge pleasure to welcome her lisa hi hi so i am going to give you a chance to uh to introduce love anthony talk uh talk a little bit about the novel and and your inspiration for writing it so love anthony is about autism um it was inspired by my cousin's son, whose name is actually Anthony, um, he and my oldest daughter were born five weeks apart. And uh, my, so my cousin and I became new mothers at the same time, and it really drew us close. And we spent a lot of time together in those early newborn days, and then as the kids became toddlers, and we were together a lot, really for the first four years of our kids' lives. Um, 
And so in the beginning, we did what all new parents do. You sort of hold your new babies and dream of all the things they're going to do and be. And we imagined, um, she actually had twins, a boy and a girl. And so we imagined our daughters in each other's weddings someday. And, you know, the girls would be um, dancers and actresses. And, the, you know, her son would be on the baseball team. And we imagined them being, you know, brilliant and going to college and, you know, all the things that we, that I think a lot of parents do. And... Um, over time, as the kids approached being about a year, um, we noticed that the girls started playing together, and um, Anthony really wasn't interested in playing with them. Um, and the girls started talking, and he wasn't. And so I watched what unfolded, which was that he was eventually diagnosed with autism. And our kids are now 12, and he still doesn't speak. And what I've witnessed over the years is, you know, sort of going through the stages of grief over the loss of those dreams that you originally imagined for your child um, because he is living a dramatically different life than our girls are. And it's been heartbreaking and devastating in all kinds of ways. But in other ways, it's been kind of remarkable and inspiring to watch the unconditional love my cousin has for her son and that despite a life that's much different than we had originally imagined it's still worthy of all of the love and the joy and and dreams that that we have for anyone um so that was the inspiration for this book it is fiction it is not about my cousin or her son um but it is about um a boy with nonverbal autism who's on the more extreme end of the spectrum and it some of the story is told from his point of view so giving a voice to this voiceless boy and then some of the story is told through his mother's point of view and then from another woman's perspective who originally doesn't really have any knowledge or connection to autism whatsoever but eventually she does yeah you um you, so your background in neurobiology and neuroscience um psychobiology or biopsychology i assume has to play some sort of role in your understanding of how this disease or you know how, how this works alongside of your observations of of your cousin's son um and does that give you a lot of help as you're writing this to to sort of have a biological background in in what you're writing about you know it normally does and that's sort of where i come from so my background is in neuroscience and my first two books were in, you know really relied heavily on that background so my first book still alice was about a woman with alzheimer's and my next book was about a woman with a condition called left neglect, and it threw, um, it's a condition that is born out of a traumatic brain injury for her. And I know a lot about the neuroscience of those two, um, the disease and the condition, and I could really weave that medical knowledge into the book. Um, with autism, you know, I was, I was afraid to write this story on a number of levels, and one of them was I really couldn't rely on my neuroscience background to write this story as I have with the other books. Mm. And the reason for that is because in 2012, we really still don't understand the neuroscience of autism. Mm. We don't know the neuroanatomy, the neurophysiology, the neurochemistry. 
I went, um, when I began doing the research for this book, so I, all of my books are heavily researched. You know, I didn't just I rely on, on my experience with my cousin. I um, talked to lots of parents of children with autism and read as many books as I could and went talked to ABA therapists and occupational therapists and pediatric neurologists and on and on. But I began the research. I actually went to my Principles of Neuroscience textbook that, that the neuroscience graduate students have, um, and this was sort of the Bible of neuroscience that I had in the 90s when I was in grad school, and I flipped to the index, and the word autism isn't even in there. Wow. And so it really still is in the hands of psychiatry and psychology. So we're still sort of in the business of of organizing the behaviors and and categorizing them and naming them, which I joke is a very autistic behavior (laughs) for these psychiatrists to be involved in. So the the psychologists and the psychiatrists are, are interested in categorizing and naming the behaviors and then treating the behaviors through behavior modification, so trying to get kids to um, behave in certain ways that are socially acceptable um, through, through things like ABA, Applied Behavioral Analysis. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's our understanding of the causes on a neuroscientific level are still in its infancy, and I couldn't rely on that expertise to craft the story. Dang it. <laughs> I know, I know. So it was, you know, I've said that, you know, with my first two books, I was really a neuroscientist writing a novel. And with this book, I had to become a novelist. Right, right. So let's talk about accessing that autistic voice. Uh, As you said, some of the novel is told from the viewpoint of... um, of an autistic uh, child. So tell me about getting kind of inside that head. Obviously, your cousin's son is nonverbal, so you don't have access to thoughts and feelings that way. How difficult was that voice for you to access? When did you know it was right? Did you stay in it for periods of days and kind of write all of those sections at once and then go back to writing the other people's sections? Or tell me a little bit about that process. Sure. So interestingly, his voice was the easiest for me to write in this book. Um, when his voice, when the sections that were Anthony's voice came to me, they didn't come sort of in the in the chronology of when they appeared in the story. Um, I would not be ready for his scene when he would be describing what it feels like to be in the swing mm. or when he's looking up at the sky um, or lining up rocks. Um, I wasn't necessarily ready for it in terms of where it would fit in the story, but it would come to me very fully formed and and ready. Um, it had a sort of magical, mystical quality in terms of how his voice came through. Hmm. But the research behind his voice um, was was real. I, I, I had done sort of the homework to be ready to 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 supply that voice. So the the research that went into that was. Um, Again, so autism is a spectrum, and so for those kids who aren't verbal, it, it just means that their expression isn't there, their expression of language isn't happening, but it doesn't mean that they don't experience the world in a very um, specific way that is similar to kids on the other end of the spectrum, and their need for routine and repetition and predictability is similar across the spectrum, um, and how they perceive 
sound and too many um, stimuli at once or how they might perceive and love being in a swing is similar, I think, across the spectrum. And so when I was talking to parents of children and adults with autism, um, they weren't all on the same level of, of severity. So some kids were nonverbal and some kids were in college um, and quite verbal and quite functional. And so what I was looking for is sort of the common threads of truth um, across kids and sort of what the essence of this experience might be and how um, someone with autism who isn't speaking might experience the world and feel and perceive um, joy and perceive frustration and what that conversation might sound like. So um, I listened for those common threads of truth with the parents and in the books that I read and in stories that I read um, written by people who had previously been nonverbal or who still are nonverbal but are able to type. Um, people um, like... Carly Fleischman um, does this. Uh, you may have heard of her. There's a book called Carly's Voice, written in part by her father and in part by her. Uh -huh. um, and there are a number of other stories out there of people who are nonverbal with autism who can relate what they're thinking through typing. So yeah. there's some information out there in terms of how to think about how someone with autism thinks and how they feel. And that was really what I was after with this character anthony yeah yeah one of the challenges that struck me as reading it from from an outsider and and you can talk to it from being the the writer uh, from the inside is that the the setting and the characters are set up to be uniquely really interior you know they're on this um island they're in nantucket not, you know kind of isolated and then the two women who we haven't talked too much about yet, but uh, Beth and Olivia are kind of the two main central characters um, alongside Anthony are uniquely isolated. You know, they're going through, one is going, they're, they're both going through a divorce, but they're, you know, kind of on this island. And I was wondering if it's difficult, because I know a lot of writers struggle with trying to get their characters up and out of the chair, up and out of the house, interacting with the world. And... Um, you know, it, it it just sort of struck me again and again how, how well you manage that, but how difficult it would be to have these incredibly interior women who were sort of, you know, trapped on this island, trapped in their house, trapped in their own psychology of divorce and whatever they're going through, um, and getting them up and out and interacting with the world. I wondered if that presented problems to you as a novelist. Uh, well, you know, it's, I love that you bring this up because it was actually quite intentional that I did that. So one of sort of the main characteristics of having autism is that you tend to sort of isolate yourself from other people. Um, you tend to, the social interaction is, isn't there as we who don't have autism experience the world. So kids with autism tend to like to be alone. Um, and because of that and because of all kinds of other issues that can go along with autism, um, parents of kids with autism often find themselves really isolated and alone. So, you know, kids don't get invited to play group um, because there's, you know, there's too much noise and um, there's too much going on that's upsetting to the kid with autism so the mom doesn't go to play group anymore. Or, you know, the kids are sort of, they're not part of main, they often aren't part of mainstream anymore. And that in and of itself takes this family um, out of 
connection with other people. And so I wanted to reflect that isolation and that alienation that can be a very um, palpable part of the experience of of having autism in your life and place it onto these characters. So it was part of the setting. Nantucket is mm-hmm. isolated from the rest of the country. It's 30 miles out to sea. Um, I wanted Olivia's um, journey to be an interior one that was isolated and interior because of the loss she's experienced and that the growth and the change that she would have to go through would bring her back into the world and back into connection with others. And I think that one of the main sort of points of the story is that whether you have autism or, or something else, whatever you've got in, in your life, um, I think as a human being, we all want to be connected in some way to each other. Right. And it may not be in the typical way that you have imagined if you have a neurotypical brain. Um, you know, for me, I was taught that, you know, to show someone that I love them, I either say the words, I love you, um, I can show you through physical affection like a hug and a kiss, um, or all that magic that can happen with eye contact. And if that's not available to you, can you still connect to someone in a deep and meaningful way? Can you still express love and feel love in a profoundly meaningful way. And that was one of the the main questions of this book. Can we connect with everyone? Are we connected to everyone? And so sort of through this um, very palpable isolation that I set these characters up with, I wanted that to be an obstacle that they could overcome in in a really big and important way yeah yeah beautiful my uh, my guest this morning is lisa genova the book is love anthony and um let's go through a, a bit of the nuts and bolts of putting the novel together it sounds like it started with character it, started, it sounds to me like it started with anthony um but talk about sort of mining the other characters olivia beth um how they came about if you sort of journaled from their perspective um, the divorce that uh, Beth is undergoing with, with her husband. Talk a little bit about how the rest of the novel formed around, around Anthony, if it was written linearly or, or, you know, kind of process questions. Sure. So um, I don't outline my books, um, which I originally thought was probably wrong and probably all other writers outline their stories and I, I've got this fatal flaw and that, I don't Alice think so, actually. And I would never <laughs> write another good book again. Um, but I, I've since met lots of other writers. You know, I didn't grow up with writers. I don't have an MFA. I didn't grow around that culture. So, you know, I'm sort of, I've come into this world sideways. Um, but I've had the opportunity to meet a lot of other writers and, and read a lot about how other writers write. And um, I've been, uh, I find it re- incredibly reassuring that most of the authors I know and read don't outline their books either. Right. And it's a, a process of discovery. So we do, I start with characters and a, and a situation. So, you know, what if this mother of a boy with autism um, who has severe, severe autism and can't speak and doesn't like to make eye contact and doesn't like to be touched. And so it's really difficult to connect to this boy and, and to know if the love you have for him is felt in a meaningful way. And what happens if just as she starts to get a footing on... Um, 
loving, like accepting his autism and accepting who he is and um, realizing that, that there can be um, joy in this relationship and that his life um, can can matter and and, and um, have meaning, uh, she loses him. 30% of kids with autism also have epilepsy, and seizures can be life-threatening, especially if the children aren't verbal and can't let you know if the medication's working or not working. Mm-hmm. And so um, the boy in this book has actually already died when the book has, begins. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and so that's the set was the setup um, for her. Um, what's going to happen? Um, can she come to some kind of peace? That was her big question. Um, why was Anthony here? Can and she, can she get some peace and, and an answer to that question? Um, the other woman in this story is Beth, and she is un. She's not connected to autism in any way at the beginning of the story, and she is faced with um, finding out that her husband's been unfaithful, and they're separated, and she's contemplating whether or not they should get divorced and whether or not she can forgive him. And in the process, she's sort of discovering how much of her own sort of identity and true heart's desire she's put on a shelf over the last many years, um, sort of going through the motions of her day-to-day routine um, as a mother of three girls and a wife to this man and living this life on Nantucket without really um, being authentic. And um, she rediscovers her passion for writing, and begins writing a story about a boy with autism. And the two women's lives will intersect. And But the the how of all that would happen, I didn't know. So that was sort of the beginning, is to write about a woman who is intimately familiar with autism and another woman who knows nothing about it, and how those two women might intersect and get sort of the answers that they need to move on with their lives um, in a positive and meaningful way from each other and from the voice of this boy who has autism. So you always um, you always knew that there were going to be two women who would come I always together. knew there were going to be two women. I wanted what part of, I think some of that comes from sort of the relationship I have with my cousin and what I've witnessed is there, there seems to be this huge divide between families who have autism and the community who doesn't. And there's a lot of fear and stigma and misunderstanding around autism and the families who have it don't really, there's this there's not a bridge between the families who are living with autism and the families who don't. There's a real big separation there. Um, and part of what I wanted the book to do was to bridge that gap and to show a woman who has no connection to autism coming to understand it. And I was hoping to bring the readers along yeah. in that journey. So for readers who aren't familiar with autism at all, they would have a way in that... Um, might feel more familiar to them than to connect with Olivia instantly. Yeah, well put. Well yeah. Put. You, you touched on this earlier, but I, I wanted to come back to it. The the fact that Nantucket uh, almost operates as a character in the book and how important the setting is to creating this feeling of isolation. Did you, I know you live on the East Coast, but I don't know if you spent a lot of sort of the winter times, the dark times in Nantucket to, to access this place. <laughs> 
Uh, I but did. talk about writing so, plays. You know, it, it became, uh, it's funny you say that because Nantucket became like another character or condition to research. So, right. <laughs> you know, I spent so much time researching autism, but I spent, you know, almost as much time researching Nantucket. And I didn't know that that would happen, but sort of the more I learned there, the more I wanted, the more I wanted to uncover even more. It's a, it's a really fascinating, quirky place. Um, I live on Cape Cod, and I live on the elbow of the Cape. So literally, I live thirty miles away from Nantucket, surrounded entirely by water. <laughs> so I'm a ferry ride away. Um, and the first time I went over for the purposes of doing research for the book, my third child was two months, almost two months old. Mm. So I'm, you know, taking my child over as an infant and walking all over Nantucket with her and breastfeeding her all over the <laughs> island. But um, I did. I went over a lot. And, you know, I went over in January, and you can't rent a car or a bicycle in January on Nantucket. And so I was meeting strangers who were giving me rides to various corners of the <laughs> island. It's a really friendly, intimate place. As isolated as it is, um, it's a small place, and there are only about 10,000 people who live there year-round. And so it was sort of the perfect place to be isolated, yet to provide opportunity for these two women's lives to quite literally intersect as they went about their days. Eventually, everyone bumps into everyone on Nantucket. Indeed. Yeah, I'm sure that's right. I'm sure that's right. Sadly, we're drawing down on our time. Is there last-minute advice you can give to writers having gone through this process a, uh, a bunch of times, or is every time sort of like the, the first time? Um, well, every time I sort of embrace it being like the first time each time, it's a chance to begin again and to have that beginner's sort of fear but also excitement and to sort of go back to the basics. So before I write um, each book, I'm starting a new one now, um, I read The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron. Uh, yeah, right. And I read On Writing by Stephen King. Okay. And... Um, that sort of reminds me of sort of the spiritual aspects of writing and the, the nuts and bolts um, of craft. And um, I write, I try to write every day um, for about four hours, and I usually begin with a, a notebook, freehand, stream of consciousness, unedited. And it might start with, you know, I'm on chapter two, what the heck happens? Okay, don't, you know, don't freak out, don't panic. <laughs> what just happened before? Where are you going? What are the questions? How is the character changing? What do we need to know? Um, and I sort of talk to myself in that, in that um, journaling. It's Morning Pages by Julia Cameron. And from there I go to the, the laptop. Um, and you just show up every day yeah. and you're not writing 300 pages in a day you're writing maybe three pages and anybody can write three pages and you can certainly edit three pages but you can't edit nothing <laughs> ain't that true you mentioned a lot yeah. of references to writing down the was it writing down the bones there were a lot of references to another writing book yeah that's yeah. another great book writing down the bones by natalie goldberg yeah. and wild mind by natalie goldberg also amazing yeah 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 this was wonderful. Lisa, thank you so much for taking the time this morning. Where, we, where can we find you online? Oh, you can find me at um, www.lisagenova.com or I'm also on Facebook at author Lisa Genova. Perfect, perfect. Thank you again for taking the time this morning. It was great. Great. Thank you so much for having me. 
That was Lisa Genova. The book is Love, Anthony. It is out and available now. And unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Barbara will be right back here with you next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m., as she always is. So until next time, thanks so much for joining me. Have a great day. Mm-hmm.